Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Truth and Justice. I appreciate you guys bearing with us, splitting up this conversation between myself and Chris. As I mentioned, as you're listening to this right now, um, there's a combination of me being in Houston, being back for 12 hours, and right now I'm on a plane uh, in the in the Truth and Justice time machine flying back from Kansas City for the True Crime Podcast Festival. So I want to jump right back into our conversation. We're going to get into uh, talking about June Sage's statement and kind of the rest of the case file all together. And once again, I am joined again this week by Chris Dolan. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Chris, picking up where we left off uh, in the last episode, we discussed the uh, a scenario that you had in mind that you think kind of fits with the evidence. And I can't disagree. You, there's, no, there's, there's nothing in the case file evidence-wise that says that can't have been what happened. I think behaviorally, it's unlikely that that's the way it goes. It breaks down. I have a scenario in my mind, and I, I guess the way I'll do this is I'll, 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 I'm going to give you a scenario. And I'll tell you up front that the hang-up in this scenario is June Sage's statement, and I'd like to talk to you about that. Of course. So what I think happened is I've I've made no no secret of the fact that I think that Eva has some involvement in this uh, for reasons we can get into in a little bit. But I think that Jennifer, as you said, gets up in the morning, everything she says as far as the page, going to Janet's, talking to Craig, I think all that happens. I think that in her first statement, there were nuggets of truth in there. I think she she came back. I think one of two things happened. I think it's possible that she never saw Eva and that later when Red Rock asks her about Eva and she says she's asleep, it's because she genuinely thinks she's asleep. Problem with that is then why is she knocking on Catalina's door if she thinks Eva's asleep? So for the purposes of this scenario, she sees Eva yelling into the apartment and taking off for help. She runs up to Catalina's door and knocks on it. But what had happened before that, I guess, let me rewind. I got ahead of myself in my scenario. So while Jen is at Janet's, I think Eva is expecting someone to come because they're going to go rough up Catalina. I shouldn't say I think, okay. but in this, in, this, in this scenario, right? So Eva comes down and it's much like you said. She's gonna, she goes over and knocks on June's door sees if anybody's home. She goes and knock on, on Catalina's door. And at that point, her accomplices come into the area. They jump the fence. They go in. They kill Catalina. As I think we both agree, that happens over the course of a couple of minutes. They grab the keys and the wallet to try to make it look like a, a robbery. They jump back out. I think Eva goes back up into the apartment. And when she opens the door, that wakes up, who had already heard some commotion, and then she opens the door and out comes Katie and Youngster, who she didn't, I, I think she probably didn't even realize they were still there. She tells that, that I don't think they, I don't think they come back outside with her. I think that, that they start to, and she tells them, 
I'm, I've, I've got these complaints about traffic, so I just, just you need to stay in here. I think something happened. I think she goes downstairs. She starts screaming into the apartment. They see this through the window. She runs off. That's when Jennifer sees her. Jennifer then goes to Catalina's door. So here's our second group, right? So you have the group that committed the murder. They're in and out. I don't think it's unreasonable to think that there could be multiple groups. I mean, it's it's nine in the morning, nine thirty in the morning on a Tuesday. There's traffic moving around the part, the apartment complex all over, and Jennifer starts knocking on the door. Red Rock and Housen walk up. She has that interaction. June doesn't see that because she's already she's already gone back. You know, she said she never got back to look through the peephole after she heard the scream, and she interacts with Red Rock and Housen. She shoes them away, and then that's when. The management and Eva and everybody comes back. Now, uh, I guess first, outside of the discussion we need to have about June, let's say hypothetically, let's say June, the person June saw wasn't Jennifer. Do you see any issues with as far as the evidence that we have for that scenario going down? So here's, I guess, I guess off of what you just said right there, my big question is, how much time did Eva and Jen have together before she actually gave this first statement. It seems like a while. So we have, we don't have, of course, you know, the big issue here is right. The lack of times, the one time that I feel is pretty I'm comfortable with, you have to piece things together. It's why a lot of times I know there's another group that has like the whole case file and they, they think I missed something if I don't put it out immediately the day they found it. But, you know, I I'm cross-referencing everything to try to figure this stuff out. So, we have in Swainson's uh, report where he says he interviews Eva and then he and then he interviews Jennifer. And, and when he's talking about interviewing Eva in that report, he says that she agreed to and signed a consent to search form in the case file. And now on, on the web, uh, website, we have the consent to search form and it's signed and there's a time written on it of 1.33 p.m. So using that, that tells me that the interview with Jennifer. And Eva, for that matter, didn't occur until around 1.30. I think it was Eva first, then Jen. And so there was hours that passed by before those statements were given. So I, I, think, there were, I think that there was, there was plenty of time for them to hatch this plan. I, I've broken down before, too, that in this scenario that Eva goes back up to the apartment and it's her, Katie, and Youngster in there, I think at that point, if Eva's involved, the, all she can think of right then is to tell them, tell them you heard screaming. We heard screaming. They come out and say that and leave. They don't say anything about it, right? When they go talk to Nina and Cena Sullivan, they don't say anything about a fake voice. They say, right. we, we heard this woman screaming. And I think then Jennifer, after that, Jennifer and Eva at some point go into the apartment. And that's where the story about the fake voice gets hatched. And, and I guess they, that's a long answer. The short answer to your question is, I think they had plenty of time to come up with that, that scenario. So I'm following and there's not a ton to really argue against. Now, one thing is uh, it it would be really convenient for the fact that, and it's a, a, one of those coincidences that Jen really did just go up to a door when somebody else went up to the door again, not physically impossible. I always put that more of the improbable side. Mm Mm-hmm when she talks about how much she interacted with that voice. Now, it it really well, uh, I always put that as that was their story that they came up with because they they were in together, but Jen's initial statement still doesn't fully jive, but I can kind of see, I could could get on board with it. Okay, but I think then there's the elephant in the room, right? June says, she saw Jen knock on her door and then knock on Catalina's and then the the group of men come in, which, you know, again, we assumed was Red Rock and Halson. I obviously theorized in this week's episode or last week's episode that I don't think she saw Jen uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, and, I, and I don't think you and I have talked about that. What is what is your what are your thoughts on that as far as do you, do you think that she for sure saw Jen? Maybe not. Or, or you think she didn't? I do think that she saw Jen, and I was actually looking this up today when I was getting ready to, to talk to you. 
I was trying to figure out if we could put a timestamp on when June Sage gave her statement. Do you have any insight into that? I don't. Uh, did you have any luck in the case file? I haven't seen any any times in there at all. I just see I, there's nothing in there that indicates a time that it was taken, unless it was also somebody else's. June's the one that uses the, the two-toned hair mm-hmm. pulled back in a ponytail, unless the other girl has that exact thing. Now, shirt and everything else that June says, uh, like, I even was, was testing this out a little bit and looking through peepholes to try to be like, what can I actually see and what, what, what should I, when I'm listening to June's and reading her statement, when I'm looking at that, what can I actually expect her to kind of see? I kind of expect her to see because she said, she even says in her statement that she's standing there for a while. Mm-hmm. If people do come up, she is going to get whoever that girl is in front of that peephole. She's going to see her from the front. And when those other people come, she's going to see that girl from behind as well and be able to get a good look at that, at her hair. Now, in that regards, I believe she, I'd have to double check, but I believe she says she knocked on her door and then walked over to Catalina's door before the people came up. So, and, and I don't know, I mean, I don't know how, how much peepholes differ. I know the, you know, the ones I've had back when I lived in an apartment were those big fish eye type deals where you can, you know, if something's right in front of it, you see it pretty well, but once it's off to the periphery, you can see it, but not great. But when she would be turned around interacting with somebody, she wouldn't have been in front of June's door. She would have been over in front of Catalina's door way off, you know, six feet to the right. Right. And I, and I was trying to pull up on my phone as, as we're talking here, to see if I can actually see what she actually said there. But I, I, I honestly think that that's what she saw. I'm less concerned with everything else that she saw from farther away. Cause I, I, I've like thought about it and, and tried to do it myself where, and there's a car in front, in the street parked in front of my house. Mm-hmm. And I try to identify what color and what type of car it is the fisheye from something that far away, yeah, I'm not quite sure she's going to get a good description of the people that walk up, other than she might know how many people there. Mm-hmm. But like that's why, like for me, the bike thing doesn't really bother me for housing because I'm not quite sure that far away with the stairs being an obstruction of view. I, I think that the number of people kind of matters more than anything else. But I think things close up are something that we can really, really rely on. I honestly really do think that, and the timing-wise, just it works out It works out really inconveniently for Jen if it's not Jen. The fact that in her statement, she mentioned 9.30, and then with the timeline that we're now theorizing, I think it looks bad for Jen to be in that spot. And to cycle back to something I was trying to find, uh, when when I wanted to know what time June gave her statement, you know, we, we had talked in, and people on the fan page had talked about the two-toned hair. I wanted to know how soon that was because I don't know if Jen was really a suspect right away. And if that statement was given really early in the, in the day, I'm not sure that that could have been something that was fed to her. Well, so th- there's a couple things there. One, th- the only thing we have to go on on time is it had to be after 11 because Swainson wasn't there till 11 if, if memory serves. Right. So that that's already an hour and a half after the fact or, you know, two hours after or an hour after the initial responders got on the scene. So it's at least an hour and he would have met with uh, Detective Allen who would have signed him what to do. He says he's in charge of getting witness statements. So it's who know, 1130, 12. So it, it, it's hard to say. The other part of that is uh, in the in the biggest, I would say even worse than the times, the biggest issue from this statement is we don't have anyone's actual words. So yes, June gave that statement at that time, right? So like that morning before, I would I would agree before Jen's as a, a suspect. However, in order for us to, we don't know what she actually said. We only know what Detective Swainson said that she said, and. We have to rely on the fact that the Houston Police Department at that time, specifically Detective Swainson in this case, was being honest and accurate and, and didn't have the ends justified the means techni- uh, 
uh, mentality that we see a lot of times in a lot of wrongful convictions, meaning we, it, it's, in, it's on the report. Swainson typed that report a week after Jen was arrested. So, right. yes, he spoke to June early, but is Swainson being honest when he types? I can't say that he's not. I think there's evidence to support that he's not, but I don't know for sure that he's not being honest. But that, but that's the big hang up with the with the identification, right? Is is that what June actually said? And and I and I have a number of reasons why. I guess I'll I'll spell them out here. Why I don't think Swainson is being honest, and if he's not being honest, then we can't trust anything that he wrote down. So so kind of Exhibit A is Zaragoza Garza, right? Now you could say he's his memory's bad and and he just forgot. But that's what, who knows? What we have on the record is that Swainson wrote a report and said that she's wearing a black shirt, uh, doesn't use the term two toned hair. Um, trying to remember exactly how he says it, but I think he said lighter, redder hair or something like that in a ponytail. And, and immediately when I read the statement, I thought that's, how, that's a hell of a lot of detail when you're driving down the road. I've paced it off when I was there. It's 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 close to 150 feet away that he would that where she would have been standing. It's 7:30 in the morning or whenever whatever time that is, and he's in a moving car and he doesn't know that he's supposed to be documenting this right. But he has the similar description to everybody else. I mean, the the, the bullet points are the same, right? The hair is the same, the height's the same, the ponytail's the same, the the black t-shirt's the same. But then when he is the he's he's the only witness of all these witnesses that we actually get his own words. And what does he testify to? It was a lighter skinned woman in her twenties wearing a collared shirt, which is not what Swainson said that he said back then. So that's kind of exhibit a that, that that's a, that's not saying, you know, there, there's, you know, there's memory. There's, there's other things that could explain that, but that's, that's one to put a pin in. Okay. So th- this seems like something dishonest happened here. And then we go to uh, Housen's the one that I have the biggest problem with. That the, you know, Housen pulls up. He says that he doesn't notice Jennifer until he's at the foot of the steps. He's looking through the steps, presumably through Red Rock's legs, and sees Jennifer, who he says is facing him. And and we've seen all the pictures of Jen from the front. They never take one from the back with her pony. You can't see any highlights from the front, but he sees her through the steps. In the shadows and only facing him by his statement. And he says that she has highlights in her hair. Besides the fact that would a 19 year old boy even know the term highlights in her hair? Maybe. I don't know. I probably did, I guess, when I was that age. But so, so then that's another red flag. Like, how did he know that? Like, how did he see that through in that circumstance? And then you have, uh, June Sage, who's looking through through the peephole now. In June's situation, I agree with you. If Jen is, if it's Jen and she's standing right in front of that door, close enough to where you get the clear view through the peephole, and turned her head, that June could have seen that she had two toned hair. I think I think that was, those were her words. Were two there, there's there's highlighted two toned and reddish uh, hair. Yeah. June did say two-toned. Yeah. So June says two-toned hair. I mean, she could have, if she turned her head, seen that. I, 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 would, I would concede that. But then the next problem comes in that the rest of her statement doesn't actually fit with what we know happened. I would say, I'll say we know. I think, you, would you agree with that? That the interaction with Red Rock and Housen seems to be pretty concrete. The, 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 the Red Rock and Housen uh, interaction definitely did happen. I think that, that there's enough, if people put themselves in there, you know, so if enough people say they were there, that, that definitely happened. Right. Yeah. And they all describe it the same way. That, that's what we're looking for, right? When we're doing a statement analysis, look, all these people right. are hitting, and we're not talking about what, you know, what was someone wearing, you know, the physical things that people always get wrong with eyewitness description. That's the other problem is that you just don't see that kind of consistency typically. In cases like this, that's why they say eyewitness, eyewitness identification is the worst evidence. But we're talking about physical movements. Was something I said where she was standing? Where you know those are things that you expect people to get right, and they all get it right, except June doesn't. 
and forget the bike for a minute. I mean, and, and again, we're not talking about looking out at, of course, I don't know how far your house is from the street. We're talking 15, maybe 18 feet away where he rolls up on the bike and she doesn't see the bike. She says they walk up or I guess she says they come into the area. Uh, doesn't mention the bike, but I don't have as big of a problem with that as the fact that what happened there when it was Red Rock and Housen is Red Rock walks up the stairs. Housen stands there. Jennifer is talking to him. They're having a conversation back and forth and he leaves. And that's not what June described. She describes the one girl is at the door and these two or three black men come into the area and then they leave the area. Now, that to me sounds like if someone was a distraction and there was already a plan in place, there's no reason for the person under the door to interact with those people, right? I mean, she knocks on the door, they, you know, gives them a nod, whatever, they go in. And that's what June is describing. She's not describing anybody going up the stairs, anybody on a bike, anybody talking to each other. None of that is in her statement. I just don't see how we can get. How does she notice it? How is she so specific in her statement to give a detail like two toned hair and not mention that they they had a full conversation together you know, or, or that they went up the stairs or that they were on a bike? With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Part of that is when you actually, um, and it's why it doesn't bother me as much as it, it, it bothers you, June's statement is essentially three paragraphs. Right. And June does say that she stood at that door, I, I, I want to say she said, for several minutes. Now, again, I, I'm going to put this whole entire thing up. If she stood at that door for a minute, that mm-hmm. was probably a long time that she stood at that door. Right. You know, no, to try to just figure out exactly what she meant by it. But the, she doesn't give a lot of description. And I don't know if that's, that's because she didn't give it. It was you know, because, of, like you said, it, these have been typed up after the fact. I think it, the amount of time she was at that peephole was longer, much longer, and could have more detail than you would think. I think she literally stood there for about a minute watching every single interaction until people started leaving. To feel, she could feel comfortable walking away from that door knowing that nothing was going to happen to her. Oh, I, I agree. I, and I just don't think, I, I don't think we got enough detail for as long as she saw. And what we have, because like you said, and the reason why I, I don't, there's little things about both interactions on both sides of what, the, what happened here. I'm kind of with you where housing seeing all those little details, if I'm imagining when I look at some of these crime scene photos, if housing standing where he hit, he is, he's got a bunch of details, right? Where I could be like, I could see where you're coming from, where the amount of stuff that housing got right from that angle could be difficult. But at the same time, then it's also understandable why June Sage got so much of those details wrong because she's also going from that kind of same difficult angle through a peephole where I'm not expecting her to get a lot of these things right either. Yeah, I, I guess I just th- th- there's there's not congruency there where it's like I'm giving you all the details I have, including the color T-shirt she was wearing and the two toned uh, hair, but then not mentioning. Yeah, and then the girl talked to the guy. And then the guys left or th- then the guy started to go upstairs. And, you know, she even says, I th- I'm, I'm almost positive it was one of the girls from upstairs, but doesn't mention also the guy started to walk upstairs. And, I, and she, she certainly could have seen that somebody start to walk up the stairs. But, but then, you know, it, it, we start, I, I start adding more to it. So all of this causes me to, you know, let's dig deeper, let's dig deeper. And, and so then I look at the fact that, okay, she talks to, you know, did, did, we, did she talk to anybody else? Yes, she talked to Janine Smith. That's confirmed. I think it's in Pam Wiley's statement. She says that Janine was tending to her. So that, and then in Janine's handwritten note, she says that she was in there talking to her. And June goes into detail, telling her that you know that, that there's been all the all this traffic, and she's just scared of these of all the stuff that's going on up there. But she doesn't mention to June, or she, excuse me, she doesn't mention to Janine 
at least not from the, the Janine thought was important to write down that. And one of them was knocking on my door. It almost makes me wonder if the knocking, if the entire thing was made up, why didn't June testify? That's another question. Maybe she's old. There's, there's reasons. Sure. But it's like, she's got the most incriminating statement out of anybody. Why doesn't she testify? Why she's not even, it's not like they subpoenaed her and then decided not to, they didn't even subpoena her to testify. She was never on the witness list. And so I start looking even further, right? So, okay, so she talks to Janine, doesn't mention this to Janine. That seems odd. If she's going out of her way to tell Janine that she's scared, why does she not say, oh, also, right before the murder, someone knocked on my door and it was one of these girls from upstairs. She doesn't tell her that. And then we get into the black shirt, right, on top of it. So we already know Garza, in his words, didn't see someone in a black shirt, but Swainson wrote down that he said that he did. Then we have the fact that Jennifer, when she confesses, says she's wearing a white shirt. And, and then at some point, she takes Alan to Eva's to look through the dirty, and he finds a white shirt in the dirty clothes. And it, it gets a little confusing the way it's, it's worded, but, he's, but it, if I'm remembering correctly, it says she says she thought she was wearing a white shirt and brown shorts and that she had changed into a black shirt. And they look and they find the white shirt and no brown shorts, but white shorts. And she says, oh, you know, maybe he wrote in his report. She then changed her mind and said she was wearing white shorts. But she always says she's wearing a white shirt. They found a white shirt with, with no, you know, he says there's no blood on it. Eva testifies that. She was wearing two shirts that day. One was white, one was black. She doesn't remember when she changed or which was first and which was second, but she definitely changed. And then we go to, well, where did this black, why do all these statements say black shirt? Who wrote those statements? Swainson. What does Swainson say when he interviews Jennifer? He writes down when he interviewed her, he writes, she was wearing a black t-shirt, which would mean after two hours after, or no, we're talking one thirty, So we're talking. Four hours after the murder, she's wearing a black T-shirt, and he notes that it's a black T-shirt. She goes down to give her statement wearing the black T-shirt. The, the state's theory is she changed clothes. Eva says she changed clothes. She always says she's wearing a white T-shirt. But why does everybody say they saw her wearing a black T-shirt? Was she wearing a black? Did she never change, or did she change from a black shirt to another black shirt? If we start going, it, this is one thing that's always in my always tried to if for me going by these statements i've had to use them and had to i've had to believe in them the whole entire time mm-hmm. right and it's almost because if i don't believe these statements are true and these uh, at least everybody's initial statements if i can't use them as a baseline and we start to go down here and if we think that this much was changed it it leads me to a question of like when when you open that that level of Pandora's box at that point in time, what can you believe then if you start to to think uh, along the lines that you're thinking where you don't even know if you can believe any of these statements because if you can't believe any of those statements, there's nothing we can even work on at this point at that point. There's really not right. Well, well we're left with trying to pick apart, and that's the aforementioned can of worms. Right. <laughs> you know, because and that's kind of what I meant by it, because I, you know, I, I'm always been under the impression when I'm investigating cases, if I find that a detective lied or bend the rules somewhere, then you have to question everything you have to. And we at least have the, the written statements. We don't have their own words because the detectives typed it, but at least we have on and some of them, at least their signature where they supposedly right. read it and signed it. But so then, then we start, and that that's where I'm at. You know, it's it's not from from some bias or some preconceived notion. It's I, I look at you know for a while there it was like definitely Jennifer definitely didn't do this because we didn't have time right because of the nine fifteen thing. But then, right. okay, well now you can't say that she 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 had time, so so we can't say she's alibi because she definitely had time to do this. I think her behaviors. Uh, are are indicative of you know, someone that wasn't involved with this. Everybody's saying she doesn't seem upset. She's just is she was she a psychopath serial killer? She's walking around just not caring, not upset. Where you got Eva overselling and youngster and Katie kind of overselling everything, or maybe Gen- Eva's genuinely upset. But so then then I think that that's where the statement analysis come in 
to be so important. And that's where I end up. And I say that things keep pointing back towards Eva. There's a number of things. So if Eva's not involved, and in, in, in I think you and I agree that there's, a, there's a, at least a likelihood that, that she was involved in some way. But for a lot of people don't think so. But it's like if she's not involved, the whole story is, you know, there, there's, there, there's the basics, right? So she says that she goes to get help because she hears this other voice and she knows that that other voice is not Catalina. She knows somebody else is inside. But that's not what she told. We know that that's not what she told the, the, the office staff. You know, that story wasn't hatched till later. So that changed. So, so that is, and, and I personally don't think that that screaming ever happened, uh, no matter who's involved. To say that the screaming didn't happen, you'd, you'd have to almost discredit three people to say that the scream never happened. Because that would be Katie, Youngster, and June all saying that a scream happened. I, I should clarify. When I say a scream didn't happen, I mean, I don't think the fake voice thing screaming happened. Oh, okay. I'm so sorry. Yeah, okay. No, that's, that's my fault. I'm with you. The fake voice thing never happened. Not even a little bit. Like, that, it, it has always boggled my mind why Jen went as far down the rabbit hole as she does is to say that she interacted for several minutes with the fake voice. Right. But I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you. That fake voice never happened. So anybody that mentions the fake voice automatically raises my suspicion because right. that didn't happen. So where are you getting that from and why are you getting that? Yeah. So you have the four inside the apartment that are, are saying this. So then it's like, well, where did it come from? Where, where did the story come from? And, and to me, again, that ends up pointing back at Eva, right? She goes in, you know, despite what their statements say, when we break down their statements, you look at what everybody else around the scene is seeing, including Red Rock and Housen, Katie and Youngster weren't outside, I don't think. I think that part of their statement is, is incorrect, or it's a lie. So then you, you, you got Jennifer and Eva also giving this story, and Je- Eva originally doesn't tell that story, but then tells it later. So where's the source? So the source is either Jennifer made up the story. And told Eva to say it, which doesn't make sense, right? Where's the utility there is, is what I get at. So for Jennifer to make up that story, there's, not, there's no reason for her to make up that story. It's easier to say I didn't hear anything. But for Eva, for Eva is the one that went to get help. So she has to have a reason why she went to get help. So there is some utility in her telling that story. So I really do think that the source of the fake voice actually is a hundred percent. I'm with you on the fact that I think it really, the, the story of it, like the idea behind it, I think comes from Eva. It's just hard for me. Like there's so many coincidences based off of, and I go, I know we're going back to a lot of witness statements here. There's a lot of coincidences that I have to get past that I really don't think to get past Eva and Jen being more in this together, even though after the fact, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But I'm with you. I think that Eva is the source of the lie, but Jen goes to like a different level of going with it. And I've always had a tough time if she just came up with it, that was just what she was told to say, or if she actually had more involvement and it just made more sense. There's a lot of things as it goes back to, there's a lot of things I got to get past in order to to start to really eliminate either of these two. And that's why I've always really I'm leaning more and more towards it's the both of them because I have a tough time eliminating either of them from a lot of things. But Eva does is probably the initial source of where the voice came from. I think that was completely her way of saying how do we get from point A to point B and telling the story, whether it's her. If, if you're correct and Jen's not involved, or even if Jen is involved, the source definitely emanates from starting with Eva. I see that. And then, and then we add to that, right? The, you know, I believe that Eva lied about her alibi in breaking down the statement analysis. When you take Youngster and KD and put them in different interview rooms with different interviewers, and they both sign statements, and they, and in the statements, they give this like detailed, Physical movements. I'm sleeping here. He's sleeping there. I hear this. He hears that. I step over him. I saw him step over me. Uh, we heard the door open. I opened the door. I saw the door open. All of that that adds up to me 
and 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 rings true. And again, there's it's like where's the utility in it? So th- I believe that Eva, when she says I'm sleeping on the couch, Katie's sleeping next to me, and youngster comes out and wakes me up and says, "Did you hear that screaming?" Like that is just a hundred percent her straight up lying about her alibi. No, and 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 I'm with you there because uh, I've I mentioned it earlier. When it comes to Katie and Youngster, everything else, everything makes sense. All of their observations of movement and what they hear and what they see, I don't think there's any reason to believe anything that they didn't make an observation of isn't 100% correct. But it's their actions that always seem to have uh, uh, a nefarious side to them, where like when they start to say, did you hear that? Did you hear that? Did you hear that? And I think that that's from the influence of whoever is really involved inside that apartment. Right. Yeah. And it's so, so when you have Eva lying about her alibi, you have, we both agree that she's the source of the fake voice story. You have the, the wallet found in her apartment. It's really hard for me to get past Eva being involved. Uh, and then, but I have a real hard time connecting her and Jennifer together. And we talked about this in the roundtable discussion too. And I know we've already touched on it here, so I won't harp on it, but you know, I just, the fact that, that Jennifer doesn't throw Eve under the bus is, is a huge hurdle for me to get over. But even bigger than that is the fact that Eva does throw Jennifer under the bus. She didn't have, you know, if she didn't want people looking into her apartment and interviewing her and, interviewing the her accomplice all she had to say was that's that was it there is a slight hurdle here that i've never quite understood and i've wondered about this for a while too now eva does give permission for the the police to search that apartment they must know that that wallet's there but she still gave consent for that yeah but you see that all the time it's just like uh when a guilty person uh, agrees to a DNA test or a polygraph, and we we see it time and time again. And and a lot of that usually is because you know they don't want to look. You know, you're kind of caught off guard if you're guilty of a crime. And the cop says, "Well, you won't mind us taking a DNA test, right, to to help clear right. you, even though you know your DNA is on the scene or you think it might be that you committed the crime. You see it a lot where they'll be like, "Yeah, uh, sure, go ahead," because they don't want to look guilty. Uh, and then they get they get back in the corner. So that one that one doesn't doesn't bother me so much. And maybe she thought, you know, what are the odds are going to find this back there? You know, it's it's tucked in b- behind the fridge and behind the coils. You know, they're not going to look that closely. And you know, they may have even said, do we just want to look for clothes or anything like that? So yeah, that that one does that one doesn't bother me nearly nearly as much as the fact that she brought Jennifer into it at all. She the only reason the police looked so closely into her and her apartment was because she said Jennifer lied or told her to lie. And, and I, and I can't see someone doing that. If they know that it's the two of them together committed the crime, it just, it just doesn't add up for me. And so that's why, like, I, I think Eve is involved and I can't see Jennifer being connected, which then leads back to way back. Right. When we go into, how do you feel about Jennifer's, confession and and her and and what guilty knowledge of the crime she has oh i've that's why when i've looked at this case i i haven't really even gone and and i don't i when of all the things i've looked at like her final confession is something that i've barely even looked at i've always thought if she was involved in this she wasn't gonna have a lot of guilty knowledge because I, i i don't see her involvement past essentially being maybe duped into being a lookout. So uh, not having the guilty knowledge has never been a hang-up for me because I I don't think, I honestly don't think she ever, if she was involved, I don't think she ever, she was told something else was going to happen. If she was involved, she really thought that it was just going to be a rough up. It's one of those things like, I I always wonder what happened to the night. Like, we right. know that a knife was used. I've been, and it's something that when, like, when I mentioned earlier, when I thought, when Katie says he sees her walking back, it's one thing that I always wondered, did she, she walked away right there, or where that knife ended up? 
And because I, I don't know if there was enough time, un, unless in in your theory, you must. Would you say what, where? How do you think the knife got out of there? I I think it points to another person being involved besides the four. I think somebody somebody left the complex with the, with the murder weapon. It it certainly didn't get you know the bloody knife didn't get stashed back into the apartment. I also don't think that Eva or Jennifer actually did the stabbing. Maybe the you know hitting over the head with the pot, but not the stabbing because you know this is not a crime where you're going to have blood spurting everywhere. People keep saying oh they'd be all bloody. I don't think they would be, but their hands would have blood on them. And the knife would have blood on it. And are they putting it in their pocket? What are they doing with it? Like it, that, that knife wasn't, that knife didn't go back into Eva's apartment. I don't think. So that to me indicates that someone else was there and took the knife with them. That's why, that's why when Katie made that comment about her coming up the sidewalk, when in Jen's statement that, that shouldn't have happened. One, it shouldn't have happened. And two, it shouldn't have happened in that order. Stuck out to me as one of those red flags where I was like, Jen, where did you go for even a quick period of time? And was anything disposed of right. in that quick period of time? But you know, the, the timing of that, if, if, if you look at it, so, and that's like you said, I agree Like, there's a, an observation like that it tends to ring true to me, but the, but I don't think that we can trust the timing because what does he say he's doing? When he sees that, he says he's down, you know, hearing the fake voice screaming, which we both agree didn't happen. So I, I think that he could have seen her walking up when she said she walked up when she was on her way back from Janet's. It could. But if if that's the case, how come she didn't mention Katie or Youngster? Or are you just saying that it, he she he only saw her from the bedroom window? It's, it's something that's been bothering me all week where the timing just doesn't work out between where Jen says Eva is, Eva says Eva is, and where the two boys say both of them are. The boys are pretty, pretty spot on in what they do, and if you were to try to follow their movements together, Jen and Eva's don't match up in where they should be in relation to where the boys are. Uh, and, and that's been something that's been bothering me because Either when Jen says Eva's at the bottom of the stairs, uh, according to, to Katie and Youngster, by that time, they sh- Eva should have been at the front door and they all went out together. That, and that's still an observation from them where I, I really, duly, truly believe everything that those two boys said. I think that they found Eva at that front door. When they saw it, she played it up as, oh my God, did you guys hear that? We got to go see it. And they went to go see it together. And it's not really until after they go back up into the apartment, after all this initially happens, that they start talking about that. But Jen doesn't mention the boys being there. She mentions seeing Eva, and then Eva talks about the voice. They talk to the voice, and she runs off right. to go get help. And one thing, one thing to note is that she doesn't just not mention them being there, but she is insistent that they weren't there. She's questioned about it in some of her and she says, no, it was only Eva. They weren't out there. And when I'm looking at Katie and Youngster, you look at, again, their observations and their actions, right? When you see two people, three people, say, say the two of them and Eva, all trying to tell a story about something that didn't happen, they get it wrong. So, right, you, they're very consistent about observing Eva at the door and how they woke up and all that. It's the, you, you notice when that statement falls apart, that when, they, when, when none of them line up anymore and they go in all different directions, is once they step out the door. And that's why I think they didn't step out the door. And, and you could think about it like this, too. So both of them say they end up going back into the apartment when Eva says, you guys better go back up because I don't want to get in trouble because of the traffic, right? Because of the complaints. That makes sense if they're inside the apartment and they're like, oh, let's come out with you. And she's like, no, no, no don't just, just stay here because I don't want to get in trouble. It doesn't, to me, make sense that after Eva hears a fake voice and thinks somebody's being murdered inside, that at that moment her mind is thinking about, you guys better go back up because, uh, because, I, because of these complaints. So, and that's, that's why in my, in my scenario, my theory, they never go outside. That she, you know, they're up, they're awake, they're there. But then she tells them, stay in the apartment because of the complaints. 
uh, and they never went out. And then look at the, you, you know, you have Youngster describing Red Rock and Housen coming up, Housen on the bike, them talking to Jennifer. I think so. He saw that. And that's another thing that, you know, as far as the timing goes. If what June saw was the, was the accomplice before the murder, I don't think that it can be Red Rock and the, the Red Rock and Housen encounter because Youngster saw the Red Rock and Housen encounter through the window, I think. But in one way or another, he saw it, which means he was awake, which means it happened after Eva came in the door and went to go running down to the office. So that's another reason why that timing doesn't, doesn't fit because until the screaming started and Eva came inside, youngsters asleep in the bed. But when Red Rock and Housen came, he was out where he, he's somewhere where he can see them, which would indicate that's after the murder. This is where sometimes when you just start talking about this, you feel like we always go down a rabbit hole right. of so many possibilities with so few tie-ins to really know where everything truly falls. It really does. It, it's 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 mind-numbing. But, but then, you know, to me, I think that the can of worms that we've opened, and if we can accept the fact that Swainson may have doctored some witness statements to strengthen their case. And you start to see, you know, because what we're trying to do, right? We're trying, when you're dealing with a bunch of witness statements, we're trying to sift through what's fact and what's fiction. And so if you start pulling those layers away and getting the fiction out of the way and get back down to the truth, to me, like it, it's, it's, it's becoming clearer what this happened. Like you, you can't, it's like you throw, it's like the whole scientific method, right? So we take the evidence and we develop a theory, and then and then you continue to test the theory about from every piece of evidence and see where the where, see where it doesn't fit. In that scenario where I gave you, like it all fits where where other theories don't. So like a theory where what June saw was the Red Rock encounter, and that scream was the murder. That that scenario makes sense until you throw a monkey wrench into it, which is the fact. That youngster saw that interaction happen, and youngster wasn't awake until after the murder. Hmm. Wow. No, I, I, this is this is why almost like sometimes like talking on the fan page is one of those things where it's like you you lose the uh, the interaction of like actually being able to talk in more than just you know five hundred words that sometimes our, our exchanges go in and actually get some some actual like back and true back and forth on. That's a very that's a that's a very good point, and it's something that because of me believing so much in the boys and what they see, that is a grounding point right there. Yeah, it definitely opens another can of worms. I think, and I, and I think with that, Chris, unless you have uh, any other points that you want to hit on, I think that's a that's a good time to to wrap this up. I want to say I I really I hope the listeners have enjoyed this as much as I have. I've th- this is. I love doing this. It's great for me instead of sitting in an office by myself with only myself to bounce ideas off of, to be able to have a discussion. It causes me to think more deeply about these things. So I, I've, I've really enjoyed this and, and hopefully the listeners have too. I, I, I sure hope so. I really appreciate you, you taking up my offer and, and having us do this. I, I kind of didn't expect you to take it up and I'm really glad that we did. Yeah, I am too. And with that, we'll go ahead and wrap this thing up. Uh, so thank you so much, Chris. Thank you, listeners. Again, hope you enjoyed the episodes in this format. Uh, and also, like I said before, full transparency for me. Things get tough when I'm traveling, and, and this worked out perfectly for me. Next week, as we've been talking so much about Detective Swainson, in next week's episode, we're going to take a close look at him as we start to break down his trial testimony. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com. 
where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team. Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth, and Mike can be found at Merb Gaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.